You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In 1989, as I was driving to work, I heard about a murder that had taken place in Beverly Hills. And then I got to work and they said, it's yours. And at the time, I was working in the organized crime unit of the district attorney's office. Most murder cases are put together by the police and given to the DA to prosecute. Occasionally, when you're in a special unit, you get a murder case at the get-go. It came my way because there were allegations that it was a mob hit. And I met with the detectives pretty early on. I had heard that he was just a nightmare to work with. He yelled and screamed a lot. He was brutal to people. I had been told that right after his murder, people were pretty pleased that he was no longer on the earth. They wanted away from their parents, but they wanted the money and the lifestyle. It's as simple as that. And I kept saying to the cops, find me those guns, because once we can hook them up with any guns, we can prove that they're the killers and not somebody else. When the brothers did the burglary in Calabasas, their attorney said, go talk to Ozeal, and it will be better for you that you're trying to deal with your problems in a therapeutic setting. So that's what they did. And then after the murders, Eric went back because Eric emotionally had a lot tougher time with what he'd done than his brother, or at least he felt the need to go see Dr. Ozeal. People kill their parents all the time. Rich people from Beverly Hills don't. And that's why this case was a phenomenon. We had to have two juries because if defendant number one confesses and implicates defendant number two, you can't put that statement on unless you could clean it up or he has his own jury. So both Lyle and Eric had made all these statements that implicated the other. So we had two juries. Leslie Abramson was the lead counsel for Eric. A lot of people in LA that'll tell you that, I mean, that Leslie Abramson was one of the best attorneys to have if you have a homicide case. When modern audiences are encountering the footage of the trial, one of the main stars of that footage is Leslie Abramson. You owe us as jurors one thing only, that you must entertain the possibility that we're telling the truth. Joe Lansing was the lead counsel for Lyle. She was a well-respected public defender and went in private practice. When the defense made their opening statement, you could hear the judge breathing. It was that quiet in the courtroom. And I thought, 
oops, we're in trouble. There is a jury instruction that says that if you have an honest but unreasonable belief in the need for self-defense, you get a voluntary manslaughter. You're not convicted of either first or second degree murder. So I knew that's what they were going for. And the weapons, they had ditched them on a hill up in Mulholland. They weren't overly sophisticated. So they got caught. The cross-examination dealt a lot with their preparation, which shows premeditation, and the lies they told to people. Mr. Menendez, that's crazy. You're crying, is that correct? Yes. At the same time as you're crying, you're also lying, aren't you? Um, yes. You emphasize that they are pathological practice liars. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, they're lying to you too. The uncertainty of their youth that came across because of what a monster that their father was, I believed it, but that said, you know, you talked to Pam Bozanich, and she didn't believe it from the get-go. One of the relatives came to me before the trial started, and this relative said that she had been to visit Lyle in the county jail, and that Lyle had told her what the defense was going to be. And she said, but Lyle, you know that's not true. And he says to her, well, that's how it's going to be. So she looks at me, and I said, well, I can't call you as a witness, right? And she said, no, I won't testify to that. But that's what he told me. There was a lot of criticism of the fact that the jury hadn't convicted. An awful lot of people, when they heard the abuse excuse, they did not buy it. They did not at all. Court TV put the trial on their streaming service during the pandemic. I'm not afraid of the Menendez brothers, but my sense of justice would be offended if they got out. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now this week, I'm continuing my illuminating conversation with the amazing Maggie Freeling. Now, before we dive back in, I want to say something about the clip that you just heard. That was Pam Bozanich, who prosecuted Lyle and Eric at the first trial. This interview aired in early April 2023, just weeks before the Peacock docuseries Menendez and Menudo, Boys Betrayed, which I highly recommend that you watch. Pam said that she was working in the organised crime unit at the district attorney's office at the time the case happened. She was allocated the case because there were indications that the murder was a mob hit. So it sounds to me like she didn't have any specialist knowledge of sex crimes. And then she got this case. Now, you'll remember I talked about that in the last episode, which dropped last week. Also, did you notice how she talked about Jose? She said that he was a nightmare to work with, that he yelled and screamed a lot, and that he was brutal to people. Her words, not mine. And she said that people were glad that he was dead. Seriously, she said that. And yet she doesn't give a thought to the fact that if he's openly like this and treats people like this... What the hell was he like behind closed doors? Then in the next breath, she boils the case down to Lyle and Eric, wanting to get away from their parents, but that they wanted the money and the lifestyle. It's as simple as that, she said. But it wasn't. 
She heard a lot of the evidence of horrific and insidious and torturous abuse. She also once said, one son killing a parent is a bad seed, two is a bad family. And she also talked about how much of an anomaly this case was, particularly in Beverly Hills. People kill their parents all the time. Rich people from Beverly Hills don't, she said. Yes, there's the clue, Pam, and it's a big one. You also heard Leslie Abramson in that clip. She said to the jury that they owe them one thing, to entertain the possibility that she and her client were telling the truth. It's funny how Pam quoted one relative who said that the abuse didn't happen, a relative that she failed to name, but yet she refuses to reference the 51 people who actually knew the abuse happened and who testified in court. The clip ended with her saying she's not afraid of the Menendez brothers, but her sense of justice would be offended if they got out. Wow. Talk about doubling down and an inability to accept that there was an alternative narrative and evidence that supported it. I wanted you to hear Pam talking and hear it for yourself because that's her view in 2023. Now, granted, it was before the Menendez and Menudo documentary premiered, but I'm not sure that that would make any difference to Pam. Anyway, let's dive back into the conversation with Maggie about the actual facts of the case and what was going on politically at the time. And this is something, you know, you asked me when you work in wrongful convictions, what do you see often? And this is what I see, is intentionally trying to get a conviction. And of course, that's their job. That's the prosecution's job. We want to get a conviction. We're trying this because we believe in this case. In this instance, I was not there again. I was barely even born. But to me, and going back and looking what was going on at the time, this seems very calculated to get a conviction at all costs, whether that meant repressing evidence in a legal way. If they did it illegally, it would have been Brady. But it just seems like the prosecutor and the judge, they were working at this together because the reputation the DA's office had at the time. So I wrote down some dates. So the Rodney King officers, they were acquitted in 92. The Menendez's first trial was in 93. They were acquitted in 94. So after this acquittal, people, the office is just, they haven't done their job at this point. I mean, these cops, there was riots because of this acquittal in 92 from the cops. So now they're like, oh my gosh, we have to, we have to get this right. 95, right when they went to trial, OJ's acquitted. The DA's office was losing big big cases. And this one was huge. This was comparable to OJ, to Rodney King, these cases they lost. So they had to win. They had to win. I'm not saying that that's them. And how do you do that? You get rid of the defense. You get rid of the defense, which was abuse. And that's what they did. They knew strategically if these boys had no defense, they would win. And that's exactly what they did. And it was very clear to me that this was politically motivated and had absolutely nothing to do with the truth of the matter of what happened. Yes, and you mentioned OJ. Well, OJ Simpson was acquitted for Nicole Brown Simpson's murder and Ron Goldman in 1995. So people talk about court TV and Nicole Brown and uh, Ron Goldman's case and OJ Simpson going on trial, that being the first time. Actually, it, it wasn't. This trial, the Menendez brothers, court TV, followed the whole of the first trial. And I don't know whether you watched any of it, but I did go back and, and watch the testimony. And of course, the boys testified themselves and it was so 
clear the pain they were in. They were so conflicted about having to say what happened to them. It was clearly something they didn't want to be talking about. And I think that's a really important point here. This wasn't something that they offered up immediately. It took a long time to get this information out of them. And yes, the Rodney King case, there was also the McMartin preschool scandal prior to that, which was the longest running and most expensive trial, which resulted in no convictions. Right. I do think that this played in Gil Garcetti being determined to change this pattern of high profile failures. And this pattern of high profile failures, you have to look at the macro, don't you? And I guess that's what you do, just like I do, Maggie, quite a lot. It's not just what's going on with an individual case. It's also what's going on politically across the board so that we understand the decisions made. Because admittedly, I just couldn't understand why Judge Weisberg, who heard all the evidence, all of this horrific evidence of abuse from school teachers, from coaches, from family members, all saying about how cruel and mean and manipulative and nasty Jose Menendez was. There was not one person who testified to him being a good guy. There was nothing positive said about him at all, which I find really interesting because Judge Weisberg then in the second trial not only excludes that evidence, but there's this whole narrative that the prosecutors told the jury, which was, and I'm going to quote because it's in the habeas, they said that the abuse allegations in this case were a total fabrication. They said that there was no way of corroborating these allegations. They said the abuse never happened. There is no corroboration of sexual abuse, that the allegations of physical and sexual abuse are not corroborated, and that Jose Menendez was not the kind of man that would be abusing his sons and that he was restrained and forgiving, and he was not a violent and brutal man, which goes against a lot of what the evidence was that Judge Weisberg heard for his own ears and watched himself as all of these 51, including Eric and Lyle, giving evidence saying the exact opposite of that. Yeah. And, you know, you said a lot of evidence. I mean, it was over 50 witnesses, I think, testifying to the abuse. I mean, that is an extraordinary amount of evidence that this happens. So the only thing that goes through my mind was the politics at the time. Was someone running for re-election? I believe somebody was, either the prosecutor or judge. Um, someone was running for re-election. And that plays into this. It gets so dirty because these people, the ones that I see, the prosecutors, judges, the ones that I see are only politically and selfishly motivated. They did not give a shit that there were two people, two young people who were devastatingly abused. This was about their political gain. And the only thing I could think is that Judge Weisberg was in some sort of a quid quo pro with the prosecutor, with, you know, whoever, when we win this case, you know, it's going to look great for you and we'll, we'll help you out, whatever that is. And that's what I see often. And it is, it is disgusting. It is disgusting. There is no other word for it. And I agree, because at the time, if we think about O.J. Simpson, the death penalty wasn't on the table for him, but it was for an 18-year-old and a 21-year-old. That's how serious this case was, that they could have both been put to death. But the decisions that were taken that were much more about people's reputation and preserving and protecting their reputation, potentially for re-election, that's what seemed to have been the thing that was valued the most. And it's interesting that you say that that's what you understand the case to be about, 
having read the habeas and understood the cases that went on prior to it. Have you seen this level of political decision-making before in a case that's had such high stakes, bearing in mind that Lyle and Eric could have been put to death? You know, it was only in the final stages of the case at the second trial where the jury, the penalty phase, which we don't have in the UK, by the way, where the jury for the first time heard some of the evidence about abuse, that some of the jurors said they would have made a different decision had they have known that. That for me is key because it talks to the habeas. Would this new evidence have made a difference to the outcome? Because that's the question, isn't it, that's going to be weighed up with this habeas. Will this new evidence, how significant is it and will or would it at the time have made a difference to the outcome? Which I believe the answer is yes, because I heard the jurors say that had they have known about all of the abuse and heard the full extent of the evidence, then they probably would have made a different decision. But now we have within the habeases two new pieces of evidence. We've talked about the letter, but there's also Roy Rosello as well who we'll come back to him. But have you seen this level of decision-making before from, you know, a DA and a judge? Because there could be political collusion here, couldn't there, between the two? Absolutely. I absolutely have. And of course, here we're not necessarily talking about a wrongful conviction, but perhaps we're talking about excessive sentencing. The part that you were talking about where the jury finally gets to hear some of what was not presented is during the sentencing. And those are called mitigating circumstances that, you know, the jury looks at to decide, okay, well, was this mitigating? Should they get the death penalty or should they get life? So yes, I see this all the time. And I especially see this when, you know, the prosecution, I'm I'm surprised this wasn't in this case, because again, it seems like they did it legally, but they'll often hide evidence, which is called a Brady violation. When we find out 10, 20, 30 years later that there was evidence the prosecution actually hid to the innocence of this person. So yes, I see this a lot. And, and I do in some of the more small town counties where judges and DAs are often in cahoots with each other. There's a case right now in Michigan, the case of Temujin Kensu. He's been in prison for almost 35 years now when he was factually 450 miles away from this crime. And he's essentially a political prisoner now because people in politics, they're not going to let him out. They want the sanctity of the conviction. And everyone in that state is working to keep him in knowing the facts of the case. So it doesn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if that's what was going on at all. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. It's interesting because here in Los Angeles and from talking to a lot of people in L.A., you know, a lot of people have said, well, politically, I don't think anyone will be minded to release the boys anytime soon. I mean, of course, they're men now. We're talking about 30 plus years. And 
this was a death penalty case, but they actually got life without parole, which means that they lose a lot of other potential things, right, in terms of any privilege going forward. Life without parole means just that. And I think it's interesting that on June the 22nd, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge called William Ryan demanded answers from the DA's office, from George Gascon. And he wants to know what was excluded from the jury. I think that's a very interesting intervention, which... It is. Yeah, which feels um, positive to me, right? And knowing Gascon, I don't know much about him. I'm not in LA, but I have cases out there. And and he is a progressive district attorney. I I am very curious how this is going to play out in his fields because he was elected under, you know, making a lot of reforms, being progressive. I'm, I'm incredibly curious to see what his office does for sure. Now I'm jumping in here because before I answer Maggie, I want you to hear this interview with two presenters from Court TV. Well, they're not just presenters. It's Judge Ashley Wilcott and Michael Ayala. Michael covered the first trial for Court TV and they're talking with Mark Geragos, one of the Menendez brothers' appeal lawyers. Take a listen to this and I'll play the full interview for you and then we'll return to the conversation. Michael Ayala here with Judge Ashley Wilcott. It has been 30 years since Eric and Lyle Menendez faced their first trial for the murders of their parents. And our Court TV cameras brought you every moment of that trial. And now the case is back in the news. Attorneys for the Menendez brothers say new evidence shows that their convictions and life sentences should be overturned. Now, during their trial, the brothers never denied killing Kitty and Jose Menendez. Instead, their attorneys argued they acted in self-defense after a lifetime of abuse at the hands of their father. What is the new evidence? It is a letter sent by Eric Menendez to his cousin, Andy Kano, eight months before the murder. So that would have been back in December of 1988. In that letter, it detailed his father's abuse. The letter was discovered allegedly or apparently several years ago by a family member and was never presented in court. Now in it, Eric says in part, It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night, I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. Also included in the petition, a signed affidavit by Roy Rosello, a former member of the boy band Menudo. He claims that he, too, was raped by Jose Menendez, who at the time was an executive with RCA Records. Joining us now, criminal defense attorney representing the Menendez brothers, Mark Garagos. Mark, great to always have you on our show, but in particular to talk about this case, because I have to tell you, I've told Michael, I was captivated by this case, by this trial, by these boys, by their allegations, all of it. And I remember watching it at the time and thinking, I just don't know that I believe what happened to them or what they say happened to them. But yet now you have this letter, pretty great evidence, I would say. Well, it's, it's, and thank you, always enjoy seeing you as well. Um, the, the evidence I think is not only compelling, it's, uh, it's horrifying. Uh, and when you combine it with the declaration by the young man from, who was then a young man at Menudo, um, anybody who had any doubts um, I think has been disabused. Then combine this, because I don't think people quite understand this, and maybe uh, until I dug into it, I admit to being in the same position. You know, bet- what happened between the first trial and the second trial 
is the first trial. All of this evidence was uh, allowed in, not the letter, obviously, that came after the fact uh, a couple of years ago, as you mentioned. But there was a hung jury. Half of the jury found that they would have been not guilty of the murder. That wasn't going to, they weren't going to get acquitted. It was just that they would have had something that uh, eliminated malice and imperfect self-defense, which would have given you a manslaughter. Um, before the second trial and what happened in the interim was the acquittal of O.J. Simpson, the judge in this case, same trial judge, reversed himself and he actually uh, invited the prosecution to reverse themselves, got into the second trial, did not give the imperfect self-defense, excluded much of the evidence of the abuse, and then probably most uh, the coup de grace really for them engineering the, uh, the guilty was uh, allowing the prosecutor to get up in closing and argue that it was an abuse excuse that they had just made it up and that it wasn't true. Uh, and that's, you know, fast forward 33 years later from when this event took place and almost 30 years uh, since the trial, uh, society's in a wholly different place. Uh, Jose Menendez, uh, I, uh, you know, by all accounts, was a monster now. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. You know, one of the obstacles facing, uh, I believe, this case is, you know, I, I was working at Court TV back then, Mark. I don't know if you remember uh, me and my colleague, Beth Karras, covered some of that case. Um, and this was the case, really. It wasn't OJ. People think OJ put Court TV on the map. It was this case. Mm. Everyone knew about the Menendez case. So my question to you is... Is it going to be an obstacle for you, the fact that oftentimes to get this type of case open, to bring in this new evidence, it has to have not been discovered back then and should not have been discovered? Is that going to be an obstacle for you, for a court to say, you know what, okay, we see the evidence, but this is something that should have or could have been discovered back then? Well, remember, this letter was apparently went to Andy. Andy... Um, uh, has passed away. It was in his effects. Nobody had discovered it until just a couple of years ago, number one. Number two, uh, if you listen to one of the, I mean, you guys did an excellent setup package. The only thing, if I were producing this, one of the things I would have suggested is to have listened to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals argument, because I've listened to the audio and at least one of the ju judges in the Ninth Circuit understood what happened. Basically, to quote the judge from the Ninth Circuit, they ginned up rules and changed the rules so they could engineer a conviction the second time around. I mean, in fundamental fairness, uh, this case should be looked at again uh, from an equitable standpoint. Uh, and now with this kind of devastating evidence uh, again that shows clearly that uh, there was this horrific abuse going on. I, I think cooler heads after three decades will prevail. And, you know, one of the other things is, and it, as a former judge, I always hate when there's any um, issue with the integrity of a judge on the bench. And to hear that basically they said, okay, we're not going to let you consider that. We're going to take that off the table and really uh, gerrymandering is what I would call it from the bench. But when you hear those kinds of things happening, it, it affects not just obviously your clients, but really our whole judicial system, because that's not the way it's supposed to work. So what do you envision? What do you hope for as an outcome? Because the reality is these two have been in jail for a very long time. Well, remember, if they had been um, convicted of 
a manslaughter, they still would have done a substantial amount of time. I haven't taken a look at the what a voluntary was with use back then, but I would imagine it would have long since been served. Uh, what I what I would hope is that, as I said, cooler heads prevail, and that we realize that these two men men, because they're now in their, uh, been in custody all of this time, uh, are, uh, would be given the chance to get out and to uh, lead a, uh, whatever semblance of a life they can lead uh, uh, at this point. Because 33 actual years for what I would submit if had been tried today, I've had cases um, in the last five years, actually last eight years, in which the abuse, the, the, where the abuse paled in comparison to this, where jurors actually wanted to acquit. And so I, you have to wonder, uh, has society come a, uh, a, a, an incredible distance in three decades, almost uh, three and a half decades, to understand that these kinds of horrific things really do happen and take place. And I do agree with you in the last 30 plus years, there's a huge difference of the awareness mm -hmm. and treatment of sexual abuse. Yeah, you know what's interesting, Mark, um, when you talk about trying this case in 1998 and you talk about trying it now, um, one of the things that I think is, is a big difference is that a lot of people I talk to about this evidence say, well, it wouldn't help the self-defense claim because the, the, the abuse wasn't imminent, it wasn't happening. But what we know about this type of thing is the air of fear that this type of, of, of situation creates for young people. And I think that would be an area that maybe the prosecution would have to consider. Do you expect, if this is successful, that they might try to try this case again or look at it and say things have changed and maybe the, you know justice has been served? Well, I, I would hope the latter, obviously. I, I remember trying cases in the 90s where, where domestic violence cases, murder cases, where it was females uh, who were shooting. I, I remember one specifically I tried in the LA Superior Court where it was a hung jury between manslaughter and murder. And that was, people were still trying to get their arms around this idea of domestic abuse back in the 90s, in the mid 90s. And so this, uh, it, it's hard to kind of transport yourself, if you will, back to the 90s. But we've made incredible strides since then, understanding the damage that this kind of abuse does is what this rape does to people and the, the threat. And by the way, I'm not arguing and people have to understand this. When this was presented, all when this evidence was actually presented to a jury very ably by Leslie Abramson uh, in the first trial, half the jurors voted to acquit on the on the murder charge. So that was back then. Can you imagine if this case was tried now? Yeah, no, you're right. I absolutely yeah. yeah, it's an excellent point, and I absolutely agree with you. Um, let's talk about how they are, because the reality is you see pictures, I've seen some interviews with them, and they, they look um, happy as they're incarcerated. I'm not suggesting that's where they're gonna be happy, but, but they look like they are, they're smiling. How in the world are they doing handling uh, their truth and still sitting in jails 30 plus years later? Well, I look, the, um, the reality is, is they both live basically their entire adult lives 
incarcerated. And uh, so you either come to grips with that and, and deal with it or you don't. And they've decided they're going to deal with it. I think that uh, that also speaks volumes as to whether or not uh, taxpayers need to have warehoused these young men for the rest of their life. I don't think that anybody um, would say that that's the case, and certainly not the victims. I mean, if you talk to one of the interesting things here is that, at least in the first trial, um, relatives of the victims, uh, Jose and Kitty, got up there and testified about some of these horrific things were going on. I mean, remember, one of the things they testified to is that there was a rule in the house that if Jose was in the room with Eric, that you could not go down the hallway. Can you imagine what, what that, uh, if you presented that today in 2023? Mm-hmm. And if you've got all of the, we now have Victims' Bill of Rights in California. If all the, if the uh, anybody who by the definition, the constitutional definition of a victim says these boys were, the, were victims as well and deserve to be out, why wouldn't you give that some credit and some uh, and some cachet, so to speak? And and the um, the trauma that's caused that we now know and talk about trauma informed work and the trauma mm-hmm. caused to people who undergo sexual abuse and physical abuse. But really, when you say some of these details, I think it reminds us all who were familiar with the first trial that it un- you can understand in today's world the anger. The mm-hmm. anger that these two boys would have as a result of the abuse they've suffered. Yeah, and let me ask you about the the abuse mm-hmm. suffered by Roy Rossello. Uh, I'm sorry, Mark, to cut you off. Um, the that abuse. How does that line up with the stories being told by Eric and Lyle? Is it is it does it seem to be a pattern? Because um, I think that would certainly be helpful to your case if that is the case. I think I think that's exactly why because they. You know, you can almost hear what somebody, a naysayer would say. A naysayer would say, well, they wrote that as part of the, the, the letter was written. Why didn't they produce it? Blah, blah, blah. Well, my retort would be it was eight months before and the person who it was addressed to ended up um, dying. Um, then the retort is, well, maybe they planned it to concoct this. That was basically the argument that the prosecutor made at the second trial after having the, the chutzpah to get uh, all of this evidence uh, excluded at the behest of uh, the judge. So then the question becomes, well, how do you, how do you corroborate it? That's, what, that's where the declaration comes in. The declaration comes in. To me, that, uh, to quote an old LAPD detective who um, uh, had exculpated a client of mine in a different case, he, he used the expression that puts a hat on it. So that, uh, to, my, to my mind, you don't get any more convincing evidence 33 years after the fact than somebody who in real time was suffering the same kind of abuse. That, and mind you, I think part of what the trouble we have or the struggle we have People can't imagine a father doing this with his son. I mean, that crosses virtually every taboo that we grow up with. Yeah, you know, it's 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 certainly compelling evidence. That that I will absolutely say. We will be watching, uh, seeing how this plays out. Mark Garagosa, hopefully we will be talking to you throughout this process to see where this ends up because certainly I believe that this is compelling stuff that needs to be considered by the yes. court. So we yes. shall see. All right, Mark Garagosa, again, thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us today. Thank Truly you, appreciate it. All right. I am too. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, he wants to know what was potentially excluded 
there's a lot of evidence that's available to show what was excluded, but it's a 100,000 page plus docket. So they've got to go through a lot of material and they've asked for an extension to go through all of the material in making a reply. But with the habeas, it's not an out and out no, it's still under review. And the judge's intervention too, I think, is a very interesting one. And I think that these decisions should be transparent and they have to be accountable because after all, Eric and Lyle are still in prison and it's 30 odd years on when I think the whole point of the case was that it was a manslaughter case, which technically for a manslaughter case, they would have served their time by now. The boys never denied doing it. And I think that's why a lot of people kind of respond in a way by saying, oh, but it's not right to kill anybody. Well, we all agree that it's not right to kill anybody. But when you've been left hopeless and helpless and you've been abused to the nature that they have with the physical, the sexual, the insidious nature of the coercive control, the fact that they found out their mum knew about it and did nothing... They were threatened that, that Jose would kill them if they ever told anyone. And they said that they were going to tell people. They, these were the last moments within the timeline of Lyle confronting Jose, of Eric confronting Jose and them saying that they were going to tell everybody and that se this secret was going to come out. And they feared for their lives. They're not saying it was right to kill either. It's very conflicting because they still loved their parents, but the threat was there. And of course, the jury didn't hear about that threat. We know from uh, abuse experts like Dr. Amburgess and Dr. John Conti and people like me who assess victims, they are genuinely in fear. It's a drip, drip, drip. The, the threat is omnipresent. And so it was never about them saying that they didn't do it, but it was about the why they did it that was so important. And I think something, you know, that I haven't really heard anyone fully dive into yet is the development of young people's brains, right? Of all of our brains. So this was something that I worked in a lot was mandatorily sending juveniles to life, right? This is the case that I worked on in Suave. Can you mandatorily sentence a juvenile to life in prison? And a juvenile, of course, would be 18 and under. What we discovered in the years since the Menendez murders in 89 is in 2012, there was a decision called Miller versus Alabama, which actually said, no, you cannot. This is a child and people's brains, especially men, do not develop until 25 years old. We're talking, this is science. This was a 2012 Supreme Court decision based on the fact that brain development is not done until 25. So even though they were technically adults, was one of them underage or were they both over 18? 18 and 21. Yeah. So even though they're both technically adults, their brains were not even close to being done developing. 25 years old. And let's talk about all the men we've dated in our lives. I would argue their brains are not developed until way later. So it, it's like these were children. And I think there is there is a good point in calling them boys. They were children, 18 and 21. So, I mean, even they did do this crime. And I'm not minimizing that in any way. But if we can't mandatorily sentence children to life in prison, I would argue that under 25 years old should still not be given life in prison. I mean, they, along with the abuse, their brains were not rationalizing properly what was happening to them. And of course, the abuse stunted the growth of their brains as well. Like you said, they were functioning around an eight-year-old's, I don't know if you said eighth grade or eight-year-old level. Yeah, eight, nine-year-olds was what they were assessed yes. as being emotionally Absolutely. and psychologically. And that, that resonates true with me. And with the Supreme Court hearing scientific evidence that 
children should not be going to prison for life. They don't even know what they're doing. So I think that's a really great argument too, that they probably have served enough time for what they did. And now that they are full-grown adults and can reconcile with what happened and hopefully have been, and I guess, you know, knowing the U.S. prison system, maybe not, but hopefully have been getting the care and therapy that they need, they would be productive members of society. And that is another question. Have they served their time? For me, I'm going to position them as abuse survivors because that's how I see them. And you're right, Maggie. You know, when we understand the the brains, the neuroscientists can tell us now that having scanned so many brains of children who have been living with an abuser, I'm not going to call it an abusive home because there's no such thing. It's an abuser that will impact the development of their brain. So they have smaller brains. So it's actually proven scientifically. And then when you add in the psychosocial development and their emotional immaturity and the fact that they were very controlled, so they didn't even have a key to the house. They were given money. Everything in their life was controlled by Jose Menendez. And so they were treated as being much younger. So on the face of it, they looked like they had these perfect lifestyles, right? Playing tennis and behind this gated, beautiful house in Beverly Hills. But they actually said, I think it was Lal who said, in prison, it's, it's better. It's better for him because he's not being abused. That tells me everything about what was going on, the horrors that they lived, even though they still loved their mother and father. But they've been model prisoners. And what I see of abuse survivors, victims, is that they normally are. If they're used to playing yeah. by the rules, i.e. coercive control, that they have to do things a certain way or there's a fear of consequence, they tend to be pretty good at following the rules of another institution. And it's going to be a challenge when they come out, and I hope it's a when and not if, they come out because they, I do believe they've served their time and people should really read up on the facts. Rob Brand's book is a very good book for the facts. He followed it right from the start. Hazel Thornton, who I've interviewed, she was one of the jurors on the first trial who was absolutely just couldn't understand or believe the, the level of abuse that she was hearing. And because the defence called numerous experts to talk about abuse and trauma, even back then, she told me she felt she'd been schooled in understanding abuse like nobody else because, you know, they really had to understand the nuanced detail and the impact of Jose Menendez's level of abuse on the boys. But the fact that every other person around enabled the abuse, which is why, Maggie, I see it as a safeguarding failure, a safeguarding failure for the boys and a miscarriage of justice because of the gross over-sentencing and that gross over-sentencing, you know, hearing the prosecution doubling down and saying that the abuse never happened and it was the silliest story told in a court. That's what David Conn said. He basically lied. Yes, yes, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie, which I see all the time in trials. Prosecutors lie all the time, all the time. And uh, that one's an egregious lie, an absolutely disgusting lie, because all of that information was there. Yeah. And to say that, that there was no sexual abuse when you're the one who stopped it from being entered into evidence. So I really hope that the Superior Court Judge William Ryan's intervention leads to some answers. We'll see what happens. I think, you know, when we understand the, the role of the media, and you know the media very well, being a part of it and a, and a journalist, but the media also played a very key role here because they listened to what the DA's narrative was. And that was the only narrative that was out there for the three years that they were awaiting trial. 
It's so fascinating to me, you know, going back and looking at all these old articles, because I was trying to figure out, you know, why Judge Weisberg did not allow the evidence at the second trial of the abuse. I was really trying to figure out if anyone reported on any kind of collusion back then. It's just fascinating to me that people really were not saying, you know, there was a first trial that all of this was in. Why was the media not like gung ho about that? It really It's shocking to me to wonder what we were doing back in the 90s. I really would love to know from some elders what was going on back then. It just seems like the media decided to ignore the first trial, ignore everything that was in the first trial and come out with this headline of an abuse excuse. Well, I would imagine some of it comes down to relationships and some of those things, you know, the powers that are in the shadows that we don't always know about. But that's what I believe was going on. The boys were vilified and they were mocked and they were misrepresented. Oh, my God. The SNL mocking kill. I can't even. That's awful. Awful. Right. And how can anyone think that that's right now? I guess people would say, well, it's our knowledge of trauma and abuse that's changed. But I still find it absolutely vile that that's what was going on back then. I cannot imagine mocking someone who says they were abused ever. I mean... Even in the 90s, in the 70s, the 80s, like, who died? What were we thinking? I always like to say in my work that these cases that I have are, are from decades ago. I mean, they are cases from 80s, 90s. And I like to think that we're getting it right more often now. And I hope that we get it right on their third try. I really, really do. I really hope that we do justice for these guys who were once children. Yeah, I do too. They deserve to be out of prison and to live their lives as as free men. They've paid enough. And I also think about Leslie Abramson as well, who defended them and fought for them in a way that nobody else ever had in their lives. And she played sort of, you know, more of a maternal role with them. They'd never had that in their lives, but she too was ridiculed and mocked. And professionally and personally, I would imagine that she took it very hard you know, to to invest in defending your clients and telling the truth, having found out finally all this evidence about the abuse and then this institutional betrayal of her own profession with the judge totally tying her hands behind her back and forcing her to stand on one leg blindfolded trying to defend these two young men. I, I just feel for her in every way because that can't have been easy and just her being vilified in, in the media too. So I hope the right decisions are now made. What do you think will happen next, Maggie? I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. Knowing these <laughs> cases as you do, what do you believe will happen next? Do you think it will be a new trial or do you think that they will be allowed to go free having served their time? So there's a couple of things that can happen after a habeas is presented, right? So the judge is going to review this and say, yes, you can have an evidentiary hearing, which is when the body is presented, the corpus is presented, and we get the attorneys, everyone is in the courtroom to look at what is this evidence and would this have made a difference? And I do think the judge is going to say, yes, this would have made a difference. Then we go to the DA's office, Gascon, and say, well, do you want to retry them now or do you think they've done enough time? And that is fully up to the DA's office to say, we're going to retry or release them. I would like to think they're going to release them. I would like to think that at this point, the DA's office probably doesn't have enough evidence to retry them with a conviction especially if this evidence will come in, the the abuse evidence is going to come in. I think the DA's office knows that's a lot of time, a lot of money to retry them. 
especially now that they will have a proper and strong defense. So I would like to think that they will be able to go home sooner than later. Yes, me too. I think the third trial, as you say, in terms of expense and, you know, really a third trial to put them through after all of these years, the the time that they've served, that would make very little sense, particularly given the decision-making and decision-taking by the judge and previous DA. We always know there's a problem with accountability, but I would love to see some accountability here for some of these decisions that have been taken. Absolutely. And that's what I love. I love that you're naming Judge Weisberg. I love that, forgive me, I don't know the prosecutor's names, the previous two, but that you name them and they should be held accountable. I mean, as you know, in the US, we don't have accountability for these things. Prosecutorial immunity. I mean, I would love to at least see these boys, these guys go home and these prosecutors and Judge Weisberg to have their faces in the paper and just acknowledge what you did to these people, these families, these lives, there does need to be some accountability. And unfortunately, they'll probably never face any kind of monetary or prison time. So it really comes down to just publicly shaming them. I mean, naming and shaming, naming and shaming. And you do a very good job at that. Well, when it's deserved in the sense that, you know, having worked in the system for more than a decade and still working 27 years onwards, you have to name. And I think there does have to be that level of accountability from the people who are involved with the cases or even talking about them. There shouldn't be an invisibility about the people who are making these key decisions. Because let's face it, when it's a good decision, they love the glory and the fame that it brings, right? But you, success has many fathers, but failure is always an orphan. And it's always the the male egos that are involved. But when terrible decisions are made and when patriarchy and the old boys club kicks in, because really that's what this boils down to as well. That's very much at play of the network. Who knows who, who's scratching each other's back, what favors are being called in behind the scenes. Oh, absolutely. And, would... and I'm sure I'm sure Jose's money and his connections too probably had something to do with the prosecution as well. I mean, this guy was a good old boy. He was one of these rich people who was very well connected. Yeah. Well, that's one of the final straws for Eric. He was meant to be going to UCLA and his father intervened, paid UCLA a whole load of money because he didn't want him staying there overnight and told Eric he wouldn't allow him to sleep there overnight. And he kept a Brown University acceptance letter hidden from Eric. And it was his intention to carry on abusing him, but he had deep pockets. So was just throwing money at people. And I think for Eric, knowing mum also knew about the abuse and did nothing, he must've just felt overwhelmingly let down, his world just crashing around him. He saw no hope for the future of escaping, but that's how Jose Menendez and these very controlling men with deep pockets do business. They throw money at things and I think that was part of it. And he had a lot to lose and people don't think about the fact he was Latino, the machismo culture being exposed. He'd climbed his way up the ladder. Here he was, this respectable RCA manager, and he was also involved with the porn industry too. He was doing a lot of things, making money, but he wouldn't have wanted all of that to come out. And it was amazing, the patriarchy just stepping behind him, portraying him as this nonviolent, forgiving, caring man 
even though no one had testified to that, not one person, everyone talked about his high levels of manipulation, control, how mean he was, how cruel he was. Not one person said the opposite, but there you have a male prosecutor, David Conn, no qualms about painting him as a very different person. And that's why Roy Rosello's account of being abused is so important. He's a menudo band survivor who I'm sure is one of many who Jose Menendez, well, we'll probably hear more from other now men claiming the same because we know that abusers who hide in plain sight, they abuse and are very prolific and prevalent. They abuse in the home and outside the home. So it was never a fact that he was not violent and that he was not abusive and that he wasn't abusing children. He started with his own and abused many others. So he's not here to have accountability. And people say, oh, well, it, it's not a good thing to talk bad about the victims. But make no mistake, Jose Menendez was a serial perpetrator who was hiding in plain sight and abused and upended many people's lives, including his own sons and eventually his own. Absolutely. You know, you kind of just said it, but I was going to say it really is a shame he's dead to not see the accountability process and to see Roy and his sons. And like you mentioned, probably other people coming forward and telling their truth finally. And he won't be here for that. And I think that's really tragic, honestly, to not see and be held accountable. Yeah. I do think about having interviewed many children who've been abused and who've come from a home where there's a coercive controller. It's so insidious. It undermines every part of your being. And all of those who I've interviewed all say the same thing. They just wanted the abuse to stop, but they felt so hopeless and so helpless in it. And that's how Eric and Lyle felt. There was no escape from it. If your mum's not going to protect you, who else will? And is all they saw from people is they witnessed this abuse. And like with Peter Carno, he tried to challenge Jose, but just stopped challenging him. So nothing stopped him. So the only people who are going to stop him were the boys because everyone else let them down. And that really resonates with me. Children who are let down and the adults who don't protect them. And that to me is what this story is about and what this case is about. And that's why I want them now to be free, just like Sally Challen, who killed the man who abused her from the ages of 15 to 52. We need to understand the impact of these abusers and hold, as you say, and I always say, hold the right people to account and make sure we are holding the right people to account. And there's a lot of people who were not held accountable here that I hope will be. Yeah, including some of the professionals, you know, and the enablers as well, people behind the scenes in with the Menudo case, Edgardo Diaz, who was, you know, put together Menudo. Lots of people knew or had an understanding or an inkling of what was going on. So you think about how many boys were, the documentary says, betrayed, but who were sexually abused and their life took a completely different turn. And I won't say destroyed, it's upended and you have to learn a new way to exist as brave Roy has done. And I am very thankful to him coming forward. As we know, a lot of victims come forward in their third, fourth decade of life when they feel safer to do so. So that's not unusual. And I hope that that investigation really does uncover what was going on. And there's still Edgardo Diaz and others potentially to be held to account. So we'll see what happens with that. Yep, absolutely. 
So thank you, Maggie. I really appreciate your time and your work. Thank you for all that you do. And it's been very enlightening talking to you as well about this case. And we'll see what happens. I feel that we're not too far off um, from hearing a, a decision. That's just something I feel instinctively. But the clock is ticking in terms of the time that they have got to respond. So thank you very much for talking with me. Absolutely. And thank you for all the work that you do. I am an avid listener. I love it. So thank you for having me. And and yeah, I feel like um, I think these boys will, or these men now will, you know, finally get their day to tell their truth to the world themselves. And, and I have hope that Gascon will be that person to allow them to do it and do the right thing. And I hope he hears this because a lot of us in this world really are counting on him right now. Amen. 100%. I really hope he hears this too. So thank you very much, Maggie. Yeah, and we will you. talk again without a doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely, Laura. I'm jumping in here to wrap this episode and also the series on the Menendez murders for now. I say for now because this case will be back in court very soon and I will revisit it. So for me to conclude, it's clear from the evidence that the rules were changed in the second trial and that critical and significant evidence was not allowed. One of the judges from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals identified that the rules were changed to engineer a conviction. That is not right, nor is it just or fair. This sort of injustice affects not just the Menendez brothers and their family and friends, but everybody. I want to see Lyle and Eric released. They've served enough time. They pose no risk to others. Prisons are full. Let the Menendez brothers out and keep the psychopaths in. And I'm leaving it on that note for now. Next week, I'm deconstructing the disappearance of Marion Barter. It's a huge case in Australia and one that I've been tracking ever since the podcast The Lady Vanishes started to investigate the disappearance of Marion. And you're going to hear me interview her daughter, Sally Layden. I guarantee you will not want to miss that. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, 
code PROGRAM.